welcome to this year's first science fiction double feature. I'm sorry we've been away, but hopefully this first episode will make up for it. This month, we talk to none other than Anne Leckie about her new book, Provenance. And after that, we have Paul Craddock, material scientist from the British Museum, to talk about what makes a historical object authentic. Provenance is a standalone novel set in the same universe as Anne Leckie's trilogy, starring everyone's favourite ancillary, Breck. However, in Provenance, we get to learn about a new culture, a new interesting grammar, with just a sprinkling of the wider galactic politics at play. It's got intrigue, sibling infighting, an obsessive diplomat, and a smattering of cultural heritage forgery. What's not to like? Here's Anne, telling us a little bit more about the plot of Provenance. So uh, it's set in the same universe as the ancillary books, but in a very different part of it. And in this particular culture, it's a, a representative democracy. So there's uh, politicians who are running for election, but it's also culturally very important to have what they call vestiges, which are sort of like artifacts that were touched by or present at important things. And this can be like very small, like a souvenir from a vacation, or it can be very big, like the possession of an ancestor, that having that kind of proves that you are who you say you are, right? Uh, it's part of your identity to be able to show these things. And the plot involves uh, someone who wants to get her hands on a very important set of these vestiges that have been stolen, but that will be very valuable to her if she can find them. The book has a very different feel than the ancillary books. Uh, it's kind of part mystery, part action, a lot of family drama. How did you settle on this story after our very long time with uh, Breck and company? Well, it was very much, it was, I had spent a very long time with Breck uh, and the trilogy was a very intense thing to write. Breck is a very intense character and I loved writing her. Otherwise I wouldn't have spent so much time with her. But uh, once I finished that, I said, I want to do something really different. I want to do something that's more, that's more fun. That's maybe a little, at least on the surface, lighter, uh, something that's a little more relaxing in some ways. Uh, and so I just said, well, what would be the, the, the funnest thing I could do? And so that was how I ended up going in that direction. And kind of what propelled the plot was the very interesting life choices that Ingray makes. Why did you want to put her into such a predicament? It's very enjoyable as you see her go from fumbling to like the end of the book and, and how she resolves it. But poor Ingray. Yes. Yeah. Some of that was, of course, you know, the worst decisions your characters make, the, the more interesting your plot can become, uh, as long as they're not stupid bad decisions, because then your reader's going, gosh, why would they do that? But also, that was partly a direct departure from uh, Breck as a main character, because Breck is very hyper-competent, and she's very confident. She has very few worries about whether or not what she's doing is the right thing. Uh, she knows what she's good at, and she's very good at those things. And that's a sort of a traditional kind of heroic character in science fiction and fantasy. But I kind of wanted to have a character who had a really bad case of imposter syndrome, who was actually fairly competent because Ingray is actually fairly good at, at the things that she's good at, but she's very worried that she's not competent enough to be what she feels she needs to be. And 
in some respects, it's very wish fulfillmenty to read about and identify with a character who's good at everything that they do. But in some ways, is maybe easier to identify with a character who's really very worried that they can't do what they're doing and maybe make some decisions that aren't the best. And so I kind of wanted to do that. One of my favorite parts was the whole kind of hijinks around the vestige forgery. Was there a particular interest of yours or did you just think it would make really good drama? I came to it kind of sideways. I, when I sat down to write and I said, what are the fun things I want to put in here? And one of the things I wanted to do, uh, because it's one of my favorite space opera motifs, was the, the ancient alien artifact, the archaeology, you know, where you're digging up ancient alien artifacts. Uh, there's a, a particular set of stories, you know, that, that deal with those kinds of things. And I really love those. And I said, right, I'll, I'll do ancient alien artifacts and archaeology. And uh, I began began to do research. Uh, and I got sidetracked, though, into the history of museums, which then sidetracked me into the whole question of art forgery and antiquity smuggling. And before I knew it, there was no alien artifacts hardly to speak of in the book. And it became all about antiquity smuggling and art forgery. Some other authors that I've interviewed really enjoy the research part of writing. Um, did you have to do a lot of that in your previous books or is this the first time that you kind of went and kind of researched a particular thing? No, actually, research really affects the way that I write uh, very heavily. Uh, it's a really important part of my process. So I'll start with an idea and then I'll sit down and start reading. And I find that when I'm doing uh, careful world building, the research not only gives me realistic details, but actually helps me make plot decisions. Because if you're in a situation where 40 million different things could happen, uh, it helps to know that in these particular situations, this one particular thing has happened and this thing came out of it. And so it helps it helps me narrow choices down uh, and it helps me sort of populate the surrounding uh, environment with things that later then uh, I don't mean them to be thematically important, but they become thematically important later on. It becomes material I can work with. So I, I couldn't work very well without intensive research. In fact, I had a, a there's a friend of mine, another writer who said to me, what do you do when you're stuck? I'm stuck. What do I do? And I said, well, what I do is I go to the library and I start reading anthropology. And she laughed at me and she said, that works for you because you're Anne, right? It wouldn't work for everybody else. But so research has always been a really important part of my process. And like the ancillary novels, there is a different way of kind of expressing gender. Could you explain how it works in this novel? So uh, in this particular culture, children are considered ungendered and they take the pronoun they. So any child you meet would be, you know, they. When you reach adulthood, which is not technically a fixed date, but people tend to expect it in your late teens, uh, you claim your adult name and you declare what your gender is. And uh, you have a choice of three. You can be a man or a woman or a nemen. And so men are he and women are she and nemen are e. Uh, which is actually a set of E.M. Air is a set of pronouns that is used by a fair number of people here in the real world as a gender neutral pronoun. Like Ancillary, it helps kind of train your brain to think completely different ways about the characters. Do you like the kind of grammatical aspect of that and how it kind of helps differentiate, I guess, now the kind of wide ranging types of civilizations in your universe? Uh, yeah, and I, I do enjoy the linguistic aspects of it a lot, and I find that it kind of stretches my brain. Uh, I learned a lot doing uh, the sort of default she in the trilogy, and uh, it's been really interesting to me to work with a, a society that 
thinks about gender in a different way from the Ranchai. Uh, I found, interestingly, that uh, while I was working on provenance, I began to, when I would talk to other people about characters in ancillary justice, I would randomly misgender characters from ancillary justice. I would slip and use uh, other pronouns, which was interesting to me uh, because you wouldn't think I would do that. I really liked getting more accustomed to the EM air pronouns. Uh, partly, as I said, I do know people who those are their preferred pronouns. And I was thinking, oh, it'll be nice. They can read this book and see someone using their pronouns. But it also helped me get a little more affluent with using them. But still, it was difficult. And it's difficult for me to do it in speech now. Uh, and I find it really interesting how heavily ingrained our vocabularies are uh, and how difficult it can be to shift it and how much they change when you do shift the vocabulary, how much it changes how you're looking at the things around you. There is a really good ethical or philosophical dilemma in Provenance about compassionate removal. Do you like putting these kind of ethical quandaries in? Because there's some with the ancillary books as well. I do. Uh, I often don't set out to do it. I often will set out and say, well, here's my plot and I want these things to explode. And I need this background to make these things explode. But when I, a part of my research and world building involves looking at how the similar things work in the real world, and they're not clear cut in the real world. All these things present serious ethical dilemmas. Uh, and so I feel like when I am sketching in my background, to recognize those ethical dilemmas gives the, the background a sort of depth that it wouldn't otherwise have. And it also, uh, in some cases, there are things that I hadn't thought about. Often we don't think much on a day-to-day, -day, unless we're involved with the justice system, we don't think on a day-to-day -day basis about the prison system, for instance. And when I say, well, I'm going to put this prison world in my thing, and I look closer at it, I'm like, mm, I haven't thought about that. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a sort of a valuable thing also. I was really intrigued by compassionate removal because it was just so, uh, I guess from my perspective, you know, everyone's going to approach it differently. It seemed really like a terrible thing to have. <laughs> and yet their society just functioned with it and was happy with it. Right. And, and there are similar kinds of things. I mean, uh, I've not infrequently, uh, it's been a while because of the people I hang out with, but I recall having a conversation recently with somebody talking about prison and saying, well, it's not that bad. It's like going to a country club. I mean, there aren't necessarily easy answers for how to handle serious crime, but prison is not like a country club. And it is kind of iffy to say, well, but they deserve to have these things happen to them because they're criminals. There's all kinds of ethical cans of worms there. And and yet most people don't think about it. And, and there are quite a few people who are like, well, but prison isn't that bad. We They're just in that building and can't go anywhere. And I, and I find that actually uh, that's a thing that happens a lot more than is easy to see where we say one thing and assume one thing the reality is very different and maybe we even see the reality but it's much easier to just say well but it's not that bad well but it's good uh and sort of dismiss the other stuff and never really think it all the way through because once you do see it your life becomes way more complicated and the other kind of bit uh, threaded throughout uh, Provenance was the, the conclave and the presser and, and it existed to some extent in the other books as well. How do you balance this kind of like intergalactic diplomacy intrigue and kind of these close-knit cast of characters in this book? That's, yeah, to some extent that's there as a kind of a 
uh, kind of an extension uh, building off of the existing universe. So readers who have read the trilogy know what that's about. So when you read those sentences and you go, oh, I see. Uh, and so some of that is just uh, there to orient readers who are coming from the trilogy. But I find that uh, even big epic things that are going on, they happen to people living their individual lives. And so if I give the background, the big epic background, and then talk about the individual lives in that context, uh, that sort of, I don't want to say it automatically balances those things, because I'm sure it's not automatic, but it's a way of working that feels much more natural to me than just, uh, just giving the epic scale or just giving the personal with no hint of the larger context. And were you hinting at larger things going to happen in future books or was it linking the universe together, as it were? Or can you even say? I can't say necessarily. Uh, but what I find is even on just the single book level, but also on the whole universe level, oftentimes I'll just throw things into a first chapter, for instance. I'll be, I need furniture, I need costumes, I need whatever. And I throw all these things in. And then later in the book, those become materials that I can use, but I, was, I wasn't planning to use them. And the world building is similar. Uh, I threw a bunch of stuff in the trilogy. Well, not all of it was stuff that I used very intensively, but that becomes available for me to use for other things. So I don't have Providence was intended to be a standalone, uh, but I will almost certainly do other books in this universe. So uh, everything that's in those books becomes material that I can use later on and probably will, uh, because it does help to have that existing stuff there to use. And at any point, do you want to escape this universe? Do you have thoughts of, a, of another trilogy or another standalone that's completely independent of uh, this universe? Um, not currently, but if at any point I get bored with this one, I will almost certainly do something else. Uh, but for the moment, it's such a big universe that I can tell almost any sort of story in it. And uh, I follow you on Twitter, uh, and I noticed, especially in light of the last year, you're you're not afraid to be political on Twitter. Do you find writing and, and kind of absorbing yourself in this, your own universe that you're writing about, a useful escape, or do you find it influences the way you write? Well, I'm sure it does influence the way I write. It's been, I am not alone among the writers of my acquaintance in saying it's been more difficult to write this year. Because you do need to kind of be able to step away and think separate thoughts. Uh, and it's it's so hard to look away from the trash fire that the world has apparently become. But you kind of have to. At the same time, I don't think, I mean, we're never writing in a vacuum. Nobody is writing without a context. And you can say you're writing about millions of years in the future, but you're always writing about your time and your world. Uh, so it's always going to affect what you're writing. I'm not sure it's possible to predict or to even necessarily see specifically how it's affecting what you're writing when you're still close up, but I think it always does. Preceding uh, the year of the trash fire, as it were, there's all the politics and fear around the Hugos in recent years. And as someone who's won quite a few awards for Ancillary Justice, um, do you think these awards help with improving diversity in science fiction? Uh, or are they kind of, again, like just attract certain antagonisms? I think that's a really complicated issue. I don't think any award by itself does anything in and of itself for or against diversity. Uh, I do think that uh, looking at the process for how those awards are, det are determined and who's involved is important. I do think having a diversity of awards is important. Science fiction has a lot of different awards. I often think it's 
really a good thing to see the different awards point out different kinds of works. Um, I know that uh, at least one year somebody said, gosh, uh, you didn't win the tip tree, which I didn't uh, for ancillary justice, although it was shortlisted, which thrilled me. Uh, and I said, actually, one of the things that I I'm glad that ancillary justice didn't win the tip tree, uh, because one of the things I personally value about the tip tree award is that it so often points out a book that I had not heard of previously. Uh, and so I think that's one of the values of that sort of award. Then there's another value. There are values values for awards that uh, go to things that lots of people really like uh, and things in between. Different awards tend to have different things that they're attracted to. Uh, and I think that's really important. But on the other hand, sometimes I feel a little ambivalent about awards because I know of several writers who uh, who feel very anxious about the possibility of winning awards or not winning awards. And and. I'm kind of sitting in a privileged space right now because for me, you know, if I never win another award, this is not going to be a problem for me. This is terrible. I would have to build a new shelf if I were going to win another award because I wouldn't have room. And I am just happy to see awesome other books get nominations and wins. Uh, but folks who haven't gotten nominations or who have gotten nominations but never won, it's not quite as easy to feel uh, relaxed about whether or not they'll ever win an award. Uh, and in some ways, that's not really fair. There are lots of amazing books and amazing stories and amazing writers who have never won an award. And that doesn't change the fact that their work is incredible uh, or that uh, folks really love it. It's really amazing to have that award validation, but it's not so good when folks are feeling that somehow they've failed when they haven't won an award. And some of that was behind some of the recent controversy in a very toxic way, uh, the feeling entitled to win an award. And, and I don't think that's healthy. Uh, but I don't know how that how you can have that and also have the good have that go away and still have the good parts of awards. I don't know how to fix that. Uh, but I think it's a really complicated and interesting topic and it's fraught with anxieties for a lot of writers. I guess in that sense, how other than awards, uh, I, I see on Twitter that other writers say, you know, tell people that you've really enjoyed their books. Um, what are other ways that you can tell people and, you know, especially new writers, I imagine that you enjoy their work and, and how to help them get wider exposure? To, well, for most folks, the most that you can do uh, is to, for instance, write a review on your blog or tell your friends. Uh, certainly, uh, it's amazing to get like an email from somebody saying, oh, I loved your book so much. That's just the best thing. That's that is an amazing thing. Uh, and I actually uh, when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of Andre Norton, but I never did write her a fan letter. And after she died, I very much regretted not having gotten up the courage to write her. Uh, but I was like, well, you know, that would be embarrassing and scary. And why would she want to hear from me? And now from where I'm sitting now, I do know she would have been thrilled to hear from me. And I regret not having written that fan letter. So even just a little email saying, I love your book so much. It's amazing to me when I'm on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever. And I run across somebody saying that uh, the book that uh, ancillary justice was very important to them for some reason, uh, or that they enjoyed it. Little things like that actually make a huge difference. Just telling people that you like a book very much, please read this. I, I think you'll enjoy it. I loved it. That's, that is a huge thing. 
some writers get uh, will say, oh, it's so important to leave a review on Goodreads or Amazon. I don't honestly know how much difference that makes, but I do know that talking about the books and stories that you love really does make a difference. I imagine you, uh, <laughs> you've already mentioned that you uh, like to read nonfiction, um, but what kind of science fiction or fantasy novels or just general fiction are you reading right now or that you have read that you really enjoy and would like to other people to know about? Part of the reason I got into writing was because I loved to read, especially as a kid. And my idea of a dream job was a job where people would give me free books. <laughs> and uh, I now have that job. People send me books all the time because they hope that I will blurb them. Uh, and I don't have as much time to read them as I wish I did. Ironically, having succeeded in getting my dream job, I now don't have the time to read very much. So I end up reading uh, things people send me, things I hear about. When I really need something relaxing, I want to read like no science fiction or fantasy at all or something super light, like a historical romance uh, where, you know, I'm just not processing science fiction. Uh, and and that can be really a lot of fun. Uh, or I'll go back to like Jane Austen or something. But recently um, I have read uh, if folks listening have not read Martha Wells Murderbot novella. I highly recommend it. It's called uh, All Systems Read, Volume 1 of the Murderbot Diaries. Uh, and the second one, which I have already read, uh, is coming out next year. And it's so much fun. And uh, I also recently read a space opera that was originally published in 1988, but that didn't do very well and is now being republished, I think next week is when it comes out, by Helen S. Wright called A Matter of Oaths, which was just fun, adventure space opera, uh, just kind of the perfect break that I needed uh, at the time that I picked it up. Uh, Fonda Lee's Jade City was a, a really uh, great fantasy, it has come out recently that I've read, um, sort of very Asian-inflected, uh, sort of mafia politics with kung fu. It's really, it's really neat. I, uh, I strongly recommend it. And you mentioned about being busier than ever. Uh, there was, I think there's like a few tweets uh, from various people that were circulating on Twitter recently about, you know, coming to being a writer later, like not in your 20s, but in your case, uh, your 40s or early. Yes. Uh, so what's 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 different between, you know, working nine to five or like a job like that and uh, writing novels? What what's what's the big difference in kind of time and energy, I guess? There are several differences, um, and one of them is that you think when you're writing full-time, right, uh, that you'll have way more time and you'll be so much more productive because you won't have your day job stuff sucking away your thoughts and energy, and you can just sit down and write all day, and you imagine yourself writing for eight hours with maybe a break for lunch, and that is not what happens. That is not what happens at all, uh, especially in my case, uh, although my kids are older now and don't need as quite as much attention – you know, I'll be the one home and then school will call and somebody has a fever and, oh, well, I'm free. I can go pick them up or, uh, oh, well, I can push off my writing for another day. I need to pick up the dry cleaning and I need to cook this thing and I need to go, you know, to the grocery store. Next thing you know, there's no, your day's all gone. You can't do that at your nine to five day job, right? Because you have to be there and doing the job. Uh, and it's really easy to go for a week and not have gotten anything done except all the other things that people need you to do. And so that's that's a serious pitfall. But one of the nice things is I can move it around like that. I can say, oh, does somebody need to meet with me at five o'clock? I can do that because I can work at a different time if I need to, especially now that my kids are older. Folks who have little kids, your time is just going to be constrained. That's just 
you know, I, I always, especially when, uh, when the, the discussion comes up about, I feel like I haven't succeeded by the time I'm 30 and I'm a failure. And especially when they're uh, moms with little kids and you're like, no, you got to cut yourself some slack when you got little kids. Totally. And people with nine to five jobs have that struggle as well with little kids. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's even bigger. It is even bigger. Yeah, it's really tough. It's really tough. And I think um, in some ways, the I, th I believe the most recent iteration of the look, you know, I didn't succeed. I didn't even publish until after I was 30 was brought on by uh, somebody noting another 30 under 30 list. And we talk so much in Ooh and Ah over the, the young folks who succeed very early out the gate. And folks, you know, you deserve to be to be recognized for that. That's quite an achievement. But I think it's maybe less common than it makes it look like every time you look at a 30 under 30 list. I suspect that in writing in particular, it's more common to uh, to do better as you get older and get some more experience under your belt. Uh, you know, you don't you don't have the thing where like if you're a professional athlete, you're going to have problems after a certain age because your body isn't working as well. Uh, in fact, all the experience you can rack up actually helps you as a writer. But we hear so much about, you know, oh, look at this 20 year old sold their first novel that it's hard to realize that that's actually not as common as folks who are actually publishing later in their lives. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. So the reason it took so long to put out this podcast is that it took a very long time to find someone who is willing to talk about artifact, fraud and forgery. However, luckily I was able to get Paul Craddock, a material scientist and metals expert who joined the British Museum in 1966. He's retired now but still works as a volunteer at the British Museum, still carrying out research and investigating objects. The interview is a bit echoey as we recorded it in the British Museum itself. The first question I asked was, what kind of frauds, fakes, or forgeries does an institution like the British Museum come across? There's all sorts of things, like a very badly object can be restored such that you can't really see that at all. Now that could just be to make it look nice, or of course it could be for something that is very badly broken and more or less worthless to make it highly saleable. And so deceptive restoration is a, um, a very big area. Also, too, you know, to turn something that is relatively mundane um, into something that is very rare and precious is one, too. You know, so, to, so, you know, the majority of the object is perfectly genuine, but all its value is in something else in, in, entirely. And, for example, we were once offered a bronze aquamanili. These are sort of bronze vessels that held water that, uh, that were sprinkled on the uh, finger, fingers of guests at uh, high-quality banquets. And horses are quite common. And, but we were offered a unicorn. <laughs> now, you know, a unicorn is almost unique and very valuable, would be very valuable indeed. And, of course, the, the entire interest, really, was not so much on, on the horse, it was on that horn. Mm. And, yes, it, 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 having been told that, Looking at the um, object, uh, the horse, you're right, it, it was a, a genuine bronze um, medieval aquamanili to which someone had soldered on a horn, which thereby increased its value by tenfold. 
So you know, the whole value of the thing was, was in there. So in other words, um, all sorts of things. Also, you know, I must sort of say that it, it, it's very difficult to call something a, um, a fake or a forgery because that in a way is a motive mm. and that you can't tell. It, the thing could well be an innocent copy. Mm. You know, um, I'm saying in the 19th century you get these uh, very fine um, Italian um, copies of uh, the bronzes, Roman bronzes found at Pompeii and Herculaneum. They were stamped underneath, you know, with the mark maker's name, etc. Well, it's quite easy to file that off, <laughs> change the patina a little bit, and try and pass it off as a genuine one. I mean, every museum has catalogues, 19th century catalogues of these objects. And so, well, when someone comes in to say, gosh, you know, if I've got a real Roman statue, to sort of say, um, Page 13 of the catalogue. There's your object, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you know, um, so, so there's, there's a whole, whole variety of things. And um, I was thinking about that question, you know, of uh, do we get... I don't think it's that often that one gets deliberate fakes, you know, someone deliberately making a fake or changing something and then deliberately trying to sell it to the, the, the museum. You mentioned a bit earlier about these 19th century things. I guess they were, as you said, they were honest kind of copies of them and then things happened to them along the road. But has trickery or changing things always been a problem in antiquities, I guess, or in museums? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the very first coin hoard, uh, you know, the very earliest coin hoard, back in the 6th century BC, of 10 coins, of which two are, are counterfeit. <laughs> so, you know, on day one. Yeah, so, 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 yes, it, it's always been a problem. And there was a recent Guardian article which I found really fascinating, which was the rise and forgeries of things like biblical scrolls, or like little fragments of them, um, because of the rise of evangelicalism in the States, and especially really, really rich evangelicals, like the owners of Hobby Lobby. Mm. Um, are there fads and forgeries? That's a particular fad based on a particular situation, but, like... Are there other fads that you know of? I was thinking about that, and I suppose one of the um, best known was in the 1920s and 1930s. There was a big rise in the faking of Dark Age, um, you know, sort of Vi uh, Viking or Lombardic or Visigothic <laughs> antiquities. Well, quite simply because, you, you know, the rise of, of uh, fascist na nation states. It's very true. You know, really and truly, the Italians wanted Lombardic stuff to show their, their Aryan um, you know, sort of things, and of course the, the Germans wanted Hunnic and Germanic stuff, and the Spanish wanted Visigothic and Vandal stuff. Uh, and so yes, there was, a, there was a huge rise, uh, and there was one spectacular treasure called the Lombard Treasure, which um, was a major exhibition, and then was exposed in 1932, I think, and was then exposed. So, in, 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 in other words, um, yes, uh, fakers rise to the market, so to speak. Um, also, too, with those sorts of things, I think, where there is things like either evangelical things there, or where there's a certain amount of faith involved, then there's, um, and certainly um, with the political things, in, there is a desire to believe it. Yeah. Right, so in order to have the idea of faked objects. <laughs> you need to have a consensus of what's actually authentic. Um, what have been things in the past, like maybe 50 years ago or even before, that we 
used to determine whether things were real? I think really and truly, very largely, the sort of art historical uh, curatorial method, mm. um, really and truly, you, you uh, had seen an awful lot of that particular sort of object and you sort of got to know pretty mm. accurately what it looked like mm-hmm. and, all, and all its various details. And you'd see something that, you know, that struck you as obviously wrong. Either it was completely wrong or it had been altered mm. or it had been stripped or something like that. I mean, very often, you know, sort of uh, a perfectly genuine object had been so over-restored. <laughs> right, it had been over-restored to fakehood. Really, you know, mm. We've certainly had that where gold objects have been so massively polished that they look so bright and shiny, well, surely that can't be real. I mean, in actual fact, they are real. Um, so I think, yeah, it's very much the appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, too, you know, yes, um, I uh, say, talking about polishing, uh, the corrosion, the, uh, uh, and you've seen it like with, with antique metals, like silver, you know, uh, trying to describe the patina. Mm. You know, and it's very difficult to work out what they actually mean by that. I think they probably mean the wear. Because after all, things kept continually polished, then, you know, the surface is going to be relatively fresh, so to speak. Um, But yes, there will be wear, you know, uh, even on the best kept object, you know, there will be some sort of wear that you can look at that and think, well, gosh, you know, it really does look too new. Uh, But yes, to some degree, um, that method, you know, sort of, just by eye and by knowledge, it does have severe limitations, mm-hmm. particularly where things have been massively over-restored and things like that. So moving on to now, <laughs> or recently, with all the kind of tools and techniques and you know, electron microscopes yeah, and like yeah, everything, yeah. What, what do we do now to determine whether or not something's real or authentic? Two things that have changed over, I suppose, the last century. We now know much, much more the exact composition of the materials used. And, you know, and, and that changed dramatically uh, through the 18th, 19th, nearly 20th century, you know, completely different from what was used earlier. Um, and now we have the means to detect that. Either, you know, the major elements, you know, see, this is brass, copper and zinc. Well, they didn't have that in, in the Etruscan times. It should be copper and tin, you know. Mm. As once again, you know, uh, really and truly people in the 18th, 19th century wouldn't really have known that. Uh, or to sort of trace elements and sort of saying, well, you know, we, the source of this stone or the source of this zinc um, is a source that just wasn't used um, right. in the past. And for example, lapis lazuli, is a very good example because there are very few sources, but most of the old world lapis lazuli comes from the Badakhshan Valley in um, Afghanistan. And it has a very distinctive composition, which is very different from the sources found in the 19th century up in Siberia and also in South America. Mm. Um, and so it's quite easy. Whereas no one would have known in the 19th century that there was this difference, mm. you know. Analytical apparatus nowadays can uh, detect, uh, can carry out a full, very complete analysis down to minor traces, um, either on a tiny sample or even no sample at all. Mm. Um, And in combination with, yes, advanced microscopic techniques, um, techniques like Raman microscopy, electron microscopy with um, analyzer, um, you can not only see tiny little areas, say in a painting, a cross-section of a painting or something like that, um, but also precisely analyse that tiny little bit. So in, in, in other words, one can uh, now uh, determine things much, much better 
And in the same way, you know, to predict that the uh, corrosion products are what you'd expect uh, from a naturally developing corrosion as opposed to an artificial one. The, the one article I read about the scrolls, they couldn't actually sample the scrolls because they're like tiny pieces, but how much do you have to take to do some of these analyses? Like oh. you, you mentioned not, some not at all, but are the ones that you actually have to you know, destroy in order to determine its authenticity? Oh, honestly, no. It does completely depend on, on um, what analysis you're doing, and uh, what they. But uh, normally, one can get away nowadays with a few milligrams at, at most. Uh, the, the normal uh, problem is not so much uh, how much you need to do the actual analysis, but if you're say uh, if you've got an object that's covered in corrosion. In a way, you have to get through that mm. to get to the body metal. You know, you could do a surface analysis, but but it may not reflect the interior in that analysis. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, a very good example of that. We had this we got in the museum this wonderful big Etruscan bowl, which came from a big tomb group for the fifth century BC um, in the eighteen forties, and it's one of our great treasures. And um, say it's fifth century BC, it should be bronze, copper, and tin. And I did a quick surface analysis. Copper and zinc, brass. So, in sort of high glee, I phone up the Greek and Roman department to tell them this, who, of course, instantly give me permission to take a drilling, which turns out to be bronze, copper, and tin. So, what's happened in the 19th century, I guess, or early 20th century, it's been stripped, what's called an electrochemical stripping, in which you wrap it in zinc wool, put it in an an, uh, electrolytic cell put a current through and that takes away most of the corrosion but of course it also dissolves the zinc which then precipitates itself into the into the remaining corrosion so so yeah so you know one has to be so careful with sort of quick non-destructive techniques you know it might give you completely the wrong answer that's amazing i guess that's why they when you're when you're thinking of cleaning something of corrosion or restoring an object you want to do it in such a way that you don't fool people in the future as well well, I, I'm, thank goodness uh, for the last, I suppose, 30 or 40 years sitting in the British Museum, and I think most museums, careful conservation records are kept. Right. But gosh, you know, um, on a lot of objects, one can only sort of guess what, what, what induced <laughs> the person to do what they did do to it. <laughs> I mean, yes, you, you get people, in, like in the 18th, early 19th, sorry, in the 19th century, um, Richard Payne Knight, who was a great collector, and there are all sorts of uh, very sort of um, I should say, determined uh, or very straight ideas. And he believed that the um, bronzes in antiquity had dark black patinas. And of course, all the ones that came out of the ground didn't, which was annoying. So he gave them the patina they should have had. And honestly, we've got dozens of these on display in the British Museum, and there they are with their dark, <laughs> fake patinas on a perfectly genuine object. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you know, so, 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 you know, it really is very often not too much about get, getting away from getting away from just is it fake, is it genuine? What's the life history of this object? Yes. What's happened to it? So the British Museum is quite a large museum, but what level of testing or kind of figuring out whether or not something is real can museums do? Um, and is there like a cost-benefit analysis that organisations have to do even before deciding to accept a new object that might cost a lot of money or something like that. Yeah, we're lucky at the British Museum here. We've got a, a very wide-ranging scientific department that can look at an awful lot of uh, different materials 
um, you know, stone, glass, metals, organic materials, etc. So you know, we do have a very wide range of examinational things. But yes, uh, uh, of course, there are things that we don't do in house, things like radiocarbon dating, mm. um, and so we would then judge uh, whether or not it was necessary to do that and and and, and send it out. Um, or it may be that it was, say, on a panel painting or something like that, which really and truly, someone in the gallery at the national, the laboratory at the national gallery could do far better. Uh. Um, and we could we could ask them if if they would help. And certainly, you know, we sometimes help the the VNA and things like that. Uh, look look at some of that. We've got a wonderful radiographic set. Mm. And recently, they've acquired these huge figures that were go, going to go on Cardinal Wolsey's tomb. Oh, okay. It was about four or five years ago they acquired these. And yes, they wanted them examined. But we've got, uh, I'll just say, this wonderful radiography set which can actually see through um, even very thick bronzes. So no, we were able to help them. So it can go like that. But uh, yes, of course, I, I mean, if the thing is a really minor thing, um, I might just say, well, no, it's just not, it's it's not worth the bother. Um, which, you know, can lead to problems. <laughs> cool. I read online that basically anything that you might buy online as an antiquity is probably fake. So if you're going to eBay and trying to find some lovely bronzes from the Etruscan age or something, they're mostly fake. Um, how, how could someone who's interested in antiquities and maybe wants to become a collector go about protecting themselves against fakes? But yes, you have to be beware of things that are without any provenance or anything like that. Not so much is it a fake, which is perfectly possible, but is it an illegal export? Mm. You know, which um, is is very wide around the world now. And so, really, if, if there's not a firm provenance, then um, really one shouldn't be buying it. Yes, there's a strong possibility that it's either a uh, you know why doesn't this nice Greek necklace have a provenance? Mm. What what I mean by that is you know, a, a proof that it came out of Greece or wherever mm-hmm. um, many years ago, uh, many many years ago. You know, and well, you know, this can be uh, done uh, with uh, proper auction records and things like that. So, well, look, you know, here it is at Sotheby's in 1890 being sold, the property of Lord so and so, you know. And how can you be sure of that? Well, you can't really. The only real way is to sort of deal with, with uh, you know, reputable dealers or reputable auction houses. You mentioned something there about it's not so much the fakes, it's, it's whether or not it's been obtained legally how i guess <laughs> are there particular countries i imagine right now it might be syria <laughs> or afghanistan but like what's the conditions that usually these things can exit the country illegally other than smuggling i guess well no it, it, it is just that that, that this things are i think virtually every country in the world has an antiquities law that forbids the export of um antiquities without permission or just full stop forbids it these are dealers around the world, so to speak, who are prepared to pay money for them, and so they are illegally exported. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it, it most certainly isn't just Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, they tend to get more publicised, you know. But, but really, most of the places that have ancient civilizations mm-hmm. um, smuggle it. Sorry, illicit excavation uh, is fairly. Fairly widespread. Uh, I'm saying, so this is around the world, full stop. Oh, wow. If you have an ancient civilization, then um, it seems like going to be done. I've got you know, metal detectors in, in Britain. 
uh, find things uh, and, and declare them, so to speak, hopefully, and some don't, uh, so to speak. So, you know, it most certainly can't just say, oh, it's silly or something like that. Right. It, it's, it's everywhere. Someone digs up something that's valuable, so, so it, it, uh, I guess a chance to sell it. They, they probably do. Oh, yeah. So um, what worries you as someone who's kind of had their career authenticating objects and investigating them? What worries you about the current state of anything in antiquities about determining whether things are good or bad or where they're from, things like that? I suppose from the point of view of a museum uh, where there are, shall we say, you know, highly knowledgeable, trained, experienced staff, I, I, I hope I'm not sounding complacent, but, uh, you know, just possibly, um, I don't think there's too much. Uh, and yes, as you were saying, for people buying antiquities online, I'd be very worried indeed. But from the point of view of affection forgery, uh, but also from the point of view they really shouldn't be doing it anyway if the thing does not have a provenance. So I, I'm not overly worried there. And in, in actual fact, um, strangely enough, of course, um, illicit excavation, sorry, um, illegal export and fakes and forgery and faking. Um, and in actual fact, operate against each other. Hmm. Um, for example, um, about 40 years ago, uh, there was this, in a place called Hajilar in Western Anatolia, uh, they found what, almost the earliest ceramic um, figurines uh, known. And they found them on the excavation of the settlement. This is the archaeologists, where they were badly crushed and things like that. And the little excavation finished and was published, and that was that. And then suddenly, complete ones began to appear. Um, and obviously, the locals or somebody had found the burial ground where the intact ones had been buried intact. Oh, wow. And yes, I, I mean, these were extraordinary little figurines. Uh, seventh millennium BC, you know, they're wonderful. And um, to their uh, lasting disgrace, major museums around the world bought them. Um, and they began to get more and more, the, the, the figurines began to get more and more exotic. And people began to sort of say, well, you know, sort of what's real, what's genuine? The only things we have in the excavation are tiny fragments, you know. Um, and so thermoluminescent dating tests were done that showed about 80%, sorry, about, about 60% of them were fake. <laughs> now, you know, to, uh, to various museums, people who bought things, or someone serves you right, but what it did was kill the market dead. Mm. Thereafter, you couldn't give the things away. <laughs> you know, if the big museums around the world have been taken in, then I could be taken in. There's no one not buying that. Ah, so, so in a way, you know, I get that. Uh, but then you go the other way too. You know, um, a place called Oaxaca in <laughs> Mexico had um, a very a few exotic uh, ceramics. And these were widely faked until forest stripping and agriculture developed very much in that region. And the lots and lots of these things were found. <laughs> the, the illegal objects, because they were so cheap, killed off the fakes. <laughs> so, so, you know, sort of, in, in a way, fakes and um, illegal objects sort of uh, 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 oper operate against, against each other. That's interesting. Uh, that's so interesting. <laughs> it's, it's not something you would you would necessarily think that would happen. Mm. Um, other than kind of fakes and forgeries, what are the what are the issues affecting preserving cultural heritage? 
Well, obviously, yeah. Sorry. Well, yes, um, just the conservation of these things. You know, well, I, I, once you've buried an artifact, whatever it is, um, if it, then um, it reaches ultimately in a, 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 a equilibrium with its environment. Mm -hmm. and when you take it out of that environment, um, it starts corroding again. Or, you know, it, it, the, you change its environment, you change the conditions. And so, uh, yes, there's enormous problems with conserving antiquities uh, and material from archaeological excavation. I mean, in Britain, it's a huge problem. Um, I'm particularly for iron, which tends to be very corroded and it's very difficult to stop it continuing to corrode. Mm. And it's, uh, particularly on post-Roman and post-Roman sites, it's found in very large quantities. Mm -hmm. very, and it's an enormous problem. Um, and uh, to some degree, People have sort of said that photography and radiography of a corroded object, and then you might just have to um, let it go. And we are talking about, you know, sort of a, a site, let's say a big medieval uh, urban site, where you might produce literally thousands of pieces of rather nondescript iron. Mm. It's actively corroding, there's no real way of stopping it. All you can do is very expensive uh, storage. And, well, you know, there just isn't the means. And, you know, this is true uh, uh, around the world. So, in other words, yes, uh, but conserving uh, is an enormous problem. Oh, well. Would you, I guess there's a, would you put it back? Like, I guess once it's taken out, there's no point. But, like, is there a balance to leaving things as they are and taking them out? Like, if you're thinking of... If, there, if there's a problem with potentially yeah. people doing illegal excavations, you want to take them out, but if there's nothing there, do you want to leave things there or take I'll, I'll always take them out regardless of what will happen afterwards? Well, around the world now, an awful lot of excavation is driven by rescue. It's a, you know, a motorway, a way to, it's not a question of leaving something. It's a question of the site is going to be destroyed by housing, yeah. by a motorway. Um, and, and, and so uh, what you uh, don't excavate gets done. But even so, you know, sort of, honestly, uh, some big, once again, urban sites might have hundreds of pits mm -hmm. which you might excavate half. Uh, and if there's not too much coming out, when you've dated the pit, you've got a representative, you've got its section and set plan, the other half will just have to go. Wow. You know, um, there's nothing you can do about it. Cool, those are all the questions I had. Thank you very much for your time, no that was brilliant. No I'm pretty sure I'm now on some sort of list having emailed so many people about fraud and fakery in historical objects. So, I hope this episode was worth it. Thanks to Anne Leckie and Paul Craddock for their time. You can find more details about both their work in the show notes. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. Thanks for listening.